Uh, as an activist, before I came to know Christ as Savior, I was a liberal activist, and I encountered people that would use a phrase when talking with Christians, and they would bring up the idea, well, judge not. Jesus said, judge not, and they were bringing up the idea that they thought that Jesus said, you cannot call anything wrong. You can't make any judgments, you can't call anything wrong, uh, but they don't mean it in the same way that Jesus meant it. I probably said it myself, but it's a twisting of the scripture, and it's the pattern that the enemy follows in taking what God said and then using it in the wrong way or to cast doubt. It's very easy to find flaws in others, isn't it? It's very easy to find flaws in others. Um, You could probably remember when, if you are married and you had that period where your, your spouse could do nothing wrong, they were just beautiful and wonderful all the time. They never did anything that annoyed you. And then the reality that you were living with a human being that was a sinner just like you, had flaws just like you, and, and sort of that, that kind of wore off a little bit. Maybe you have your kids, if you have kids or grandkids, and they, they spend time with someone in Sunday school class, or they go over to a friend's house, and the parents or the teacher tell you, your child is just so well-behaved. And you run through all the things in your head and you're like, my child? Because it's so easy to find their flaws. You know the problems of the people that you work with and that's the guy that's always late and that's the guy that's lazy and that's the guy that cuts corners and that's the lady that's doing this. You can, you can easily find those things. And it's a problem because we often feel compelled to say something about it. Sometimes we just gossip about it with other people. Well, you know, it's old so-and-so. Yeah, she's up to this again, or he's up to that again. Or, perhaps even worse on some occasions, we try and go and speak with the person and correct them. And some people have taken the idea of criticism, of condemnation, uh, into an Olympic-level sport. They're so good at it. But I have to ask the question, what was the spirit of Jesus Christ like? What was the spirit of Jesus Christ like? The Bible clearly condemns sin, And it holds up holiness, and we ought to do the same. And so we find ourselves in this weird place where we think we need to speak up against evil, but at the same time, we need to be full of grace and truth like the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we deal with the sins of other people, if not through criticism? Well, the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount sets forth a way of living that honestly is not something that you and I can do apart from the power of God. Once we see what he says and we realize that is the life of following after the Spirit, we can finally live that life. And he tells us a way to handle things that is so far from the carnal criticism that comes so easily. So in Matthew chapter 7 and verse number, that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Let's pray together. Father, open your word to us. I pray that the Spirit of God would give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord Jesus Christ 
was a traveling itinerant preacher, and he would go from city to city, synagogue to synagogue, up in the area of Galilee and other places, teaching, preaching, performing miracles, and that led many different people to follow after him. Some of them actually became his followers. Some of them only wanted the free meal that sometimes accompanied Jesus's preaching, and then some of them were critics. Some of them were enemies, and they opposed him. And he, I want you to think, as we're, we're talking in context of this, of a group of people called the Pharisees. They were religious, elite Jewish rulers that did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And in fact, oftentimes, they're questioned as to whether or not they truly had faith in God at all, or whether they were just religious lost people. Jesus mentions them multiple times. We see many interactions with the Lord Jesus. And so I want you to have them in your mindset because they were the clean living, they were the strictest group of Jewish believers in that time, of, I should say, Jewish adherents. Many of them weren't true believers. And they they wanted you to follow it down to the minutia, to the littlest detail. They would hold your feet to it, and you would quickly be condemned if you did not do it. And they were very critical of Jesus and Jesus' followers. So when we think of the word judge here, I, I want you to think of condemning somebody. I want you to think of the idea of judging somebody as guilty, and therefore they ought to be punished because of it. This isn't simply the idea of identifying, well, something is right and something is wrong, or something is good and something is bad. This this idea that we look at here is, is really the idea of condemnation. And we're warned in the beginning here that we ought not judge so that we are not judged in return. Now, what are we thinking about here? If you condemn other people, if you have that critical spirit... Don't be surprised if you get condemned in return, if you end up criticized in return. There's a law in the Bible, and it doesn't matter if somebody believes the Bible or not. It doesn't matter if they're a Christian or not. This is a true observation that even other religions have made. Look in Galatians 6, would you? Galatians 6. The universal law of sowing and reaping. Whatever you sow, that you're going to reap. Whatever you put into the ground, that you can also expect back out. You put in apple seeds, don't be surprised if you get apples. You, you put in, uh, you put in um, lettuce, don't be surprised when you get lettuce, the plant, actually back out of it. And the same way, when you put in a critical, condemning spirit where all you find with people is wrong, don't be surprised if you get that back out. It says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. What we have is a universal principle that whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. Other religions notice that God has set up the universe like this and they call it karma. But long before there was karma, there was God. And God said that Whenever you put something into the ground, you reap what you sow and you reap more than you sow. If I put a kernel of corn in the ground and it grows, do I just get a kernel back? No. Hopefully, I get a whole ear or a whole stalk of corn with many ears on it. 
right? So you reap what you sow and you reap more than you sow. And so Jesus has taken that truth to a very specific area. And he says, if you have this critical spirit that the Pharisees have, if you have this critical spirit where you're always condemning people, watch out because you're going to reap that in response. You're going to have that back. In verse number two in our passage, Jesus says, be careful, not just what you judge, but with what measure you judge. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. So if, if you are dealing with somebody and you are criticizing them about a certain area, don't be surprised if that same area gets criticized in your life. But he also says the measure. So if you take a strict, uncompromising, harsh tone in how you criticize and condemn and judge others, don't be surprised if you receive back a harsh, uncompromising, criticizing tone. If you show grace and mercy, don't be surprised that you get grace and mercy back. Because with whatever measure, whatever standard you use, right? Don't be surprised when they measure it. So uh, think about a yardstick, right? You want to measure something and you use a yardstick to measure something. And the yardstick says, this is how tall it is. Well, you're not going to get anything other than a yardstick when it's, when it's your turn. You're going to get the exact same measure. So we ought to be very, very careful how we treat others, what we say to others, and how we criticize them. Uh, I read something that uh, Harley Snowed, one of our, our friends, posted, and he said something along the lines of preachers should always use sweet words when dealing with people in church because you never know when you're going to have to eat them. And I thought there's, there's something to be said for that. There's something to be said for that. So what we have to look at in this passage is not that there's never a time to speak about things that are wrong because there is a time. But we have to recognize that none of us get some position like the Pharisees had where we can call everyone else out on their stuff and not end up having ourselves be condemned. Look in Romans chapter 2, would you? In Romans chapter 2, we have these inspired words. The penman's the Apostle Paul. The author, of course, is the Spirit of God. And in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2 in verse number 1, we reach this conclusion. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whatsoever thou, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth and against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? One of the things that it's pretty easy to come to terms with once you know Christ as Savior is that you're a sinner. In fact, that's one of the first things that you have to come to terms with in order to trust Christ as Savior because unless you realize that your sin has separated you from God and has set you on a path of eternal torment in hell, you never cry out for salvation. Someone who's not drowning won't cry for the lifeguard and so he'll never get the life ring thrown to him. The same way someone who doesn't realize that they're a sinner never truly calls on the Lord for salvation because they don't realize the peril that they're in. And so oftentimes, people in that situation, they, they don't see that they're a sinner. Now, I want you to know that I lied, and I stole, and I lusted, and I coveted, 
all sorts of things before I was saved. But if you asked me I was a sinner, I would have said no. Now, how dumb is that? You know why? I couldn't see it because of my pride. I couldn't see it because of my pride. And in just a moment, Jesus is going to use an amazing uh, teaching illustration to, to show how silly it is that the Pharisees were doing what they were doing in criticizing people. But the, the truth of the matter is that I was a sinner whether I wanted to re realize it or not. I am inexcusable, as it says here. No one gets off and gets to say, I'm perfect. I've done everything that I need to do. Only perfect people go to heaven. And so unless you're a perfect person, then you need the perfection of Jesus Christ put on your account by trusting him as Savior. Now, I want you to know that there is a time for correction. There is a time for rebuke. But I want you to notice the context. One of the passages that came to my mind when I thought about this was 2 Timothy. Would you turn there with me? In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, who is uh, leading a work of God, a church, a congregation of people. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, This is the, the last thing that we have, at least in Scripture, that the Apostle Paul wrote before he gave his life for the cause of Christ. And so he was dealing with weighty matters. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering." and doctrine. So he says here, this is what I'm charging you to do. Timothy, there is a time when you have to stand up against bad doctrine, bad teaching, bad beliefs. You have to do this. But notice all of the words. Notice all of the words that he says there. He says, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Blast them. Blast them, Timothy. Tell them everything that they do wrong. Get in their face about it. Make signs about how wicked they are. Get in their face. That's what you ought to do. No. He says you need to rebuke. You need to correct them. You need to reprove. You need to show them where they're wrong. You need to exhort them. Show them in the way that's right so that they can take steps forward. But you need to do it with long-suffering, patience, endurance. And you need to do it with doctrine, with teaching, with helping them to understand what the truth is. That's the way that, that rebuking happens. I don't know um, if you've had a lot of success with criticizing people to their face and having them take your criticism. I don't know if you've had a lot of success with that. How, how many of you feel like you're really good at that? Any of you feel like you're really good at that? I, I don't. I don't. Uh, oftentimes, people are, they, their hackles go up. You know what that means? You say your hackles go up? It's what happens on a dog when it gets agitated. You see its fur kind of puff up, right? It, that's, that's usually what happens when people correct you. There's been a few men that have corrected me, and I was able to receive it. And I knew that they loved me, and I knew that they were for me, and that they had shown me. And many more times than not, what they said to me was encouraging. And so when they did have to take me aside, and they did have to correct me, I was able to receive it. But then there are people that all that they do is find problems with you, right? After a while, you kind of turn the volume down on those people and you don't hear what they say anymore. 
This can be dangerous in a marriage. This can be dangerous in a home. When you eventually nag a person to death and tell them what's wrong so often that you don't get listened to anymore. And nobody hears what you have to say and you wonder why there's such poor communication. You may have poisoned your own water. Parents with children, I would recommend that for every one time you have to say something correcting or that might be hard to hear, there's three times that you've said something encouraging and loving. I think it's a great ratio. I think we ought to strive for that. I think that people are much more likely to receive that. Verse number three, back in our passage, Jesus gives us a teaching illustration. Jesus gives us a teaching illustration. He says in verse three, Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? You say, what's a mote? Imagine a really tiny little piece of wood, like a splinter, like a speck, like not, not something that's, but enough that you get it in your eye and you know that it's in there. Maybe dust is blowing and it's bothering you and you're trying to get it out. Maybe your eye waters a little bit. And then I want you to think about a beam. Now, we can't see them inside of this building, but there are beams that are holding this whole roof structure up. Maybe some of you in your basements can go down and see large wooden beams running the length of your house and they're weight-bearing and they're large and they're, they're holding up your house or they're holding up the roof of your house. That's the kind of beam we're talking about. And he says, why, why are you so worried about the, the problems that are going on in your, your brother's eye that you have to make such a big deal about it, but that there's a, there's a beam in your eye? In other words, you're dealing with the smaller nitpicking of the sins. There. I don't like how she does this. I don't like how he does this. I don't like how they say that. I, I don't think that's right. And then there's a huge problem a huge sinful area in your own life that remains unaddressed. For the Pharisees, it would be their own pride and self-righteousness. It would be their own pride and their own self-righteousness. They thought that they were so good that they could not even see the beam. And it's obvious that they had the beam. And yet they were busy messing around with somebody else's eye. In verse number 4, it says, Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the moat out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Right? It sounds pretty comical. It sounds pretty comical to imagine, but if I had a giant piece of wood sticking out of my eye, and I was walking around, and I had to lift it up so it didn't hit Pastor Steve, and I walk over here to him and say, I think you've got something in your eye. Do you mind if I get that? You'd say, stop. Stop. Yeah, exactly. There's a problem pastor that you better address you've got a two by four sticking out of your head now of course i hope that you would call the ambulance and that i would be hospitalized but this is an illustration this is something that jesus was using to let them know how crazy it was that they were giving jesus and jesus's followers a hard time for things like uh, eating of necessity on the sabbath day without ceremonially washing and yet here they are and they don't even believe in god and they're doing all sorts of terrible things to people And and there's just some people that want to fix everybody's problem and everybody's business. They do. They're critical about every aspect of somebody's life. Well, why'd you do it that way? Well, why'd you say it that way? Where have you been? What have you been doing? I wouldn't do that. That's not how you ought to spend your money. That's not how you ought to spend your time. That's not who you ought to associate with. That's not what you ought to do. Is there a God in heaven? Is there a God in heaven? The answer to that question, I hope, 
from people that would show up at church on a Sunday night would be yes. Is there a God in heaven? Yes. There's most certainly a God in heaven. Does he work in people's hearts? It says here, why are you talking with your brother? Jesus is speaking about people that believe. Does, does God not correct people so that you have to do it? So that you have to be the one that, that takes everybody's business and, and cleans it all out? You heard the old phrase, unsolicited advice is rarely heeded and often scorned. Here, let me tell you how you ought to raise your kid. Ooh. Mama bear mode comes up. Don't you tell me how to raise my kid. Look at your kid. <laughs> that's, that's generally what happens, right? People don't like that. I would say, be careful making it your job to fix everybody's business. Be very careful making it your job to fix everybody's business. Love them. Pray for them. Do good to them. Point them to the scriptures. But if you are not their parent and you are not their pastor, you probably ought to be very careful before you approach them to correct them because they may not be able to receive it from you. There's a few people in my life that I can receive correction from without immediately trying to... Dis no, that's not even true. When they do it, I do immediately discount it and then the Spirit of God says, all right, idiot, what they said is true. You better listen. It's hard. It's very hard. If you've ever had a conversation with me where we had to talk about something that I think this is not good. This is not good. We have to, you don't, you're not going to like where this is going to lead. You know how much I hate that. You know how much I hate that. And you know how uncomfortable it is and how unpleasant it is. But it's absolutely necessary as a pastor. But that's a special role and that's a special relationship. And unless you have that relationship with somebody, be careful. Be very careful. Verse number five, thou hypocrite. First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast the moat out of thy brother's eye. Here's what needs to be done, person with the beam in your head. You need to address that before you go trying to fix everybody's little specks inside of their own eyes. Why? Well, first of all, it's ridiculous to think that if you're solving eye problems and you have this bad of an eye problem, that you can do anything to help somebody else's eye problem right? If you haven't addressed your own issue, let's make it a little more concrete. If you haven't addressed your own sin in your life, it's going to be very hard for you to address somebody else's sin. There was a guy that I worked with down in the steel mill who was um, in Vietnam and he had uh, PTSD. It was my first time ever being with somebody that had PTSD. Loud noises, he would hunch. He would hunch and kind of hide his head like something was around. He was, he was an operator. He did a great job at his, at his work. He was good at what he did. But whenever anybody would um, make a loud noise, drop something, something other than the equipment he was working on, made some sort of banging noise, he, he was really spooked by it. He was really spooked by it. And, and he would just cuss up a storm. He would just cuss up a storm when it happened. And he would be so mad. And he'd say, I said a whole bunch of prayers today, and then I came in here, and you idiots, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and he'd go on and on. Now look what you've made me say. Now look what you made me do. And he would walk out. And he knew that I wanted to go to seminary. He knew that I, I was a dedicated Christian. And, and one day, I'm eating lunch in the office, and he comes into the office too, and he's like, you didn't pray over that food before you ate. He was right. He was right. But, but he also taught me some, some new special words that morning, too, when he came in, when he went on one of his tirades. You know what? I didn't take his correction 
very seriously because there was obviously some things that needed to be worked on before he came and spoke with me. Do you know why else it's important to have dealt with your own sin before you help deal with somebody else? Because you learn compassion. Because you realize how hard, how hard the struggle is in overcoming your own sin. You realize how helpless you are to really do anything about it, and it takes the power of God enabling you to overcome. You know what it's like to try and fail and be disappointed with yourself and have to crawl back to God and say, God, forgive me, I said that again, I thought that again, I did that again, I went there again, whatever that thing might be. You know what that battle is like, and when you finally give it over to God and you finally overcome and you've come through that, your whole perspective, it says you can finally see clearly now to help somebody else. You know that when you walk up to somebody, it's not as easy as, you've been sinning, stop it. And they're like, oh, okay, thanks for that. Once you've been down that and you've overcome that, it teaches you compassion. It teaches you mercy. It teaches you grace. Why? Because God was so gracious with you. Because God was so merciful with you. Because God didn't throw you away when you didn't do right. The Pharisees were hypocrites. In Matthew chapter 23, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus calls them out on a few things. Let's just go verses 13 through 16, though. We could do a whole lot more. Here he's denouncing the Pharisees. He's describing, or I should say, prescribing woe upon them. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. You make it hard to get people to heaven, and you're not even going there yourself. And you're supposed to be the gatekeepers of the word of God. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. You take advantage of people, and you use your position for your own benefit instead of for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Not only are you all a child of hell because the devil is your father, because God is not your father, you go to great lengths to take somebody and turn them into someone who follows after your path, and they're even worse than you are. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. They would work religion in order to make sure that when people said that they were going to pay something, that they paid it because they were worried about lining their pockets. There was many other times when he said, hypocrites, woe, doom and destruction upon you. These were the kind of people that he was dealing with. He said, first address your own sin, and only then will you have the perspective to help others. And you say, are we sure that Jesus says it's okay at some point in time to correct others? Absolutely. The end of verse 5 says, then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. There is a time, but it's not when we first haven't dealt with the things that need to be dealt with in our lives, and we've gone through that process so that we know how to deal with others. Here are some points of application for us. Three things to encourage you to write down. First of all is to resist having a critical spirit. Resist having a critical spirit. The Pharisees, all they saw was what was wrong with everyone else and what was right with themselves. That ought not be how God's people act. 
That's, that ought not be how God's people act. Many people today are very quick to get negative, to complain, to murmur about things that are wrong. Uh, have you ever noticed that the natural course of conversation when you're talking with someone over a period of time ends up at complaining? How many of your conversations, they naturally end up with, tell me three things that God has done for you this week that have just filled you with joy? Right? You say, I don't know that that's ever happened in a conversation. But I could ask you, how many of your conversations in the past week have already gone to complain about prices of fuel, the government, this work, this boss, this worker, this friend, this coworker, mom, dad, right? And you can say, oh, yeah, I had a few of those. I'll be honest, I had a few of those. More than I had that were rejoicing. You know, we live in a world that's full of sinners and full of great evil, and we will never lack for something to point out that we see that are wrong in others. But we, we need to be more concerned with glorifying God through seeing people saved, getting the Spirit of God, becoming Christ-like, letting the Spirit of God crowd out the things that aren't there. It's amazing. I, I am always amazed at how sitting down with somebody and sharing the Word of God with them in a one-on-one -on -one discipleship arrangement how much that takes care of the sin problem in their life. I am always amazed at that. If you've never gone through that with somebody, you need to do that someday. You need to teach somebody else and see, because they, they start saying, oh yeah, I stopped doing that. Or, oh, I've started doing that. And you think to yourself, we never talked about that. We never discussed that. Where did he get that from? Where did she get that from? Well, the Spirit of God spoke to them. And now they're not just doing it because you browbeat them into it. Now they have the conviction, well, that's what God's word said, and so that's what needs to do, what we need to do. You'll notice that the teaching and preaching around here is not based on people's preferences or whims. It's based on the word of God. And so we do our best to take you to the word of God to show you what the word of God says, because that's what's going to change people. But it's very easy to have a critical spirit. It's very easy to have a critical spirit. And so we need to make sure that that doesn't infect us. The second thing is simply to show grace and mercy to others. If we're going to be measured by the same measure we use against other people, if we're going to be judged in the way and in the areas in which we judge others, if we are going to reap what we sow, then here's what I'm going to sow, friends. I'm going to sow mercy where people withhold the punishment that I deserve, and I'm going to sow grace where people are good to me even when I don't deserve it. That's what I'm going to do because you know what? I want that back. Not only that, but Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth, and I want to be a part of that. You say, I don't know, this sounds, this sounds a little wishy-washy, and I think we need, to, we need to take a harder stand against sin than what you're describing. Can I, can I remind you of the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you look with me in, in John chapter 8? In John chapter 8 and verse number 3. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him, that's Jesus, a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? They're trying to trip Jesus up here. 
They're trying to get him in trouble because either he is not going to be compassionate towards this woman, as he often was, and perhaps he will lose some of the respect that his followers have, or he's going to go against the law and look like he's lawless and doesn't follow the Old Testament. So they're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him in trouble. And they say, so what sayest thou? This, they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast, first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. I don't know what it is that Jesus stooped down in the dust and wrote exactly, but many people believe that it was the Word of God. Perhaps it was the Ten Commandments. Perhaps it was specifically things that they were dealing with. Who knows? Perhaps whatever Jesus wrote, every man that was there saw their own sin in whatever he was, and it was something miraculous. But whatever it was, it was so convicting that the eldest chief Pharisees and scribes that were there, beginning with them, after Jesus charged them and said, whoever's without sin, you go ahead. You begin the stoning. You go ahead. Cast the first one. And the chief, the eldest, turned his back and walked off. And then the next. And then the next. And the people began to quietly shuffle away. Moments ago, they were saying, what do we do with her? This is what the law says. She needs to be put to death. She was caught in the very act. There's no doubt of it. And now there's silence. Nothing but feet shuffling away until the Lord Jesus is left alone with the woman standing in the midst. Verse 10, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I want you to consider that here is a woman who is guilty as anybody could be guilty. Here is a woman who did something that was as terrible as anybody could do. And yet when she was brought before the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of him railing against her like the Pharisees did, he was the one that stood up for her. He was the one, just like he does between us and the enemy, between us and the devil, he is the one who protects us from the condemnation of others, even though we're guilty. He's the one who steps in between. And he says, where are, where are your accusers? She looks around, no one's left. And he says, I don't accuse you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He didn't condone her sin. He didn't say it was okay. But the way in which he dealt with her was so tender. The same thing with the woman at the well. If we had time, we would go there, but we don't have time. But just as a summary, he finds a woman who's been married how many times? Five times. And she's shacked up with number six, and they're not married yet. And you know what he does? He politely and tactfully calls out her sin. And he says, it's good that you admit you have no husband, because you've had five, and the man you have now, he's not your husband. He showed her her need. He showed her that she was a sinner, that she needed the Savior. And she ran all around town telling everybody who she had found, that she had found the Messiah. There's only one group of people that Jesus is ever harsh with. Who is it? Pharisees. Pharisees. It's the religious hypocrites. 
It's not those that are they're in the bondage of sin. And so we ought to be very, very careful to not only be gracious to those that are in sin, but to also make sure we don't end up like the Pharisees. We should sow grace and mercy to others. Choose compassion over criticism and grace over gossip. And then lastly, we need to address our own sin. We need to address our own sin. The Pharisees' critical spirit blinded them to their own sin. Their own pride refused for them to see how hypocritical it was to use religion to rob all of these old widows and to to try and squeeze money out of people. They cared nothing for mercy and truth and real judgment, Jesus said. They did not address their own sin. And you know what? Because of it, they missed out on Christ. They missed out on Christ. They, they not only did not accept him as Savior, believe on him as Lord and King, but they, they condemned him. They rejected him. You and I need to do something very uncomfortable. But sometimes we have a beam, or maybe just a furring strip, or a one by three, maybe a shim. Maybe it's just a speck. I hope I get to the speck days someday. I hope I get to the moat where that's all that's left. We need to ask God to show us our sin. We need to ask the Spirit of God as Christians for the Lord to do a thorough work. What what are my thoughts? What are my words like? What are my actions like? What, what, What does the Lord have to say? So that our sin might appear exceeding sinful. It's a Bible phrase. Sometimes we get so comfortable with our sin, we don't even see it anymore. And we just allow it to sit there like a, like a family pet. Just keep it around, feed it, so it doesn't leave. We should be asking the Spirit of God to search our hearts, to point out those things. And then in prayer and in practical ways, battle it. And the Spirit and the power of God overcome it. And as we mentioned before, that's what will change your heart so that when ye are spiritual, and you see somebody in a fault, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one. In what spirit? In the spirit of, I'm so good and they're so bad? Meekness. Meekness. Strength yielded unto God. And I'll tell you, people that have had battles with sin and have been broken by it and have come through on the other side, they make some of the very best counselors. They make some of the very best people to go to for help because they know what it's like. They know what it was like to not be able to put down the bottle. They know what it was like to, to surround yourself with that, those sights and sounds and images and things that they ought not look at. They know what it's like to be involved with those people and to have God break into their lives. And though at times they got up and they failed and they got up and failed, seven times you might fall, but if you're working in the Spirit of God, you won't stay down. Those are wonderful people to have as helpers. Those are wonderful people that make a difference in the lives of others. That's a process that only happens when we address our own sin. Some of you have been through things like that and you have a great gift to share with others. You have a very great gift. I I won't tell you who it is. I won't tell you what it's about, but I'll tell you someone came to me and they, they asked for help. They asked for help about something. Someone that's not even in our church. Someone that I knew from years gone by. And they said, I need someone to help keep me accountable. I've been involved in this sin. And I I need somebody to check on me every week to make sure that I'm doing right. I'm not getting involved in in this anymore. And I said, I'll be that person for you. I I would be honored to be that. And um, because it's something that I had dealt with before. 
And so, and, and God had given me the victory over. And so that person, they, so I've worked with them for a long time now, and, and we check in, and we make sure that everything is what it ought to be, and things are good. And then he calls me up the other day, and he says, somebody just came to me, and they're involved in the exact same thing. They're involved in the exact same thing that I used to, to struggle with. And I'm like, isn't that something? So now they've come, and, and he's trying to help somebody else because he's experienced that victory. Don't think that because you've been through something that broke you and hurt you, that that somehow makes you less desirable to God. He gives us the comfort that we need to be comforters to others. He gives grace to us to overcome things so that we can help other people overcome it. And sometimes it's not even sin, by the way. Sometimes it's just the things in life that happen. If you've been through loss and hardship, if you've been through poverty, if you've been through illness, if you've been through uh, the death of a spouse, if, if you've been through uh, the death of, of a child, if you've been through uh, what it means to have a, a spouse that's on um, drugs and alcohol or a child that's wayward or, or parents that are absent, if you have been through that and God has given you victory over it, you have a gift to pass on to someone else. You have a great gift. I'd, in fact, encourage you to seek an opportunity to bless others with that. And some of our people have. There's great training that you can get to be a counselor, a biblically-based counselor, so that you can take other people through what you've been through and show them the victory that Jesus Christ showed you. Resist having a critical spirit. Show grace and mercy to others and address your own sin. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Let's bow our heads together, shall we? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to invite you to just take a moment and sit before the Lord and see what the Spirit of God is speaking to you about. In our church, we have what we call a time of invitation where we invite you to act on what it is that the Spirit of God has touched on in your heart and life. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. But whatever it is, I hope that you'll say yes to the Lord. Maybe you're here tonight and, and you have a critical spirit. You do. Maybe it's only seen at home. Maybe it's only with your spouse or your children or your grandchildren. Maybe it's only at work. Maybe you do a pretty good job of hiding it. Maybe it's just your thought pattern. Maybe you've learned to curb your tongue, but, but not your mind and your heart. And God has put his finger on that. And you say, I need to have a renewed mind. Maybe you're cutting with your words. Maybe you're in everybody's business all around you. Trying to set everything straight. Friend, there's a God in heaven. And he does a much better job than I do. And if you're honest, he'll do a much better job than you'll do. Maybe there's some sin in your life that has been left unaddressed. I don't know what it is. But the Lord does. Jesus said we can deal with that in his strength. The Bible says that he works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That we have become overcomers through the Lord Jesus. You can have victory over it. You really can. Maybe God has brought you through something and, and now that you've been brought through it, you can bring somebody else through it. And you say, I'm going to see what the Lord will do in giving me opportunity to pass this on and bless others with it.
Maybe you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism. You've never put your faith and trust in Christ. Maybe there's something completely different on your heart and mind. And you want to bring it before the Lord during this time. Whatever it is, would you say yes to him? Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for your long suffering toward us. We thank you for your compassion and mercy and grace. We thank you for such a savior who would have mercy on the sinner. I pray that we would have the heart and mind of Christ. That we would speak against evil, but we would do it in the right way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing, shall we?